RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. So it's Thursday morning here at RCR. Tomorrow, the end of tomorrow, over the weekend, we should have the special votes count. So we'll kind of know for sure what form this government will take. So we thought it would be a good time at about now to try and solve the health system problem in about an hour, maybe sooner. So how do we do that? Um, We have some guests on our program this morning making up the panel. Grant Schofield. Hi, Grant. Welcome. Hi, Paul. Jody Brunning. Good to see you again, Jody. Thanks for inviting me back. And Linda Wharton. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for having me here. Thanks for coming in. So Grant is behavioural nutrition and physical activity guru, um, Auckland University. Jody Brunning, sociologist, and we have had her on the program before on a number of things. And Linda Wharton, acupuncturist and naturopath, founder of the Health Forum NZ, supporting vaccine-impacted New Zealanders. All right, let's get straight into it. And anyone can go first. What is the greatest, the top priority for our health system, if we're going to put it in a save the health system mode right now as we talk this minute here on RCR. Who wants to start? Okay, I'll start. I mean, we need to deal with the elephant in the room, which is what has immediately gone before us. Okay. Um, Paul, which is the, the COVID debacle. Um, and I suppose we're going to get to that in due course. But, you know, looking straight forward uh, right now, um, and there's some, the massive problems are we haven't got a, a health workforce that is fit for purpose anymore, mainly because we're losing staff overseas. They're expensive to train. Uh, GPs are old and retiring, and we can't replace them quick enough. So we're going to have to do something quite different to even keep doing the same things that we're doing. And if you look at the major causes of people being unwell, by far and away, well, we want a sickness system, right? You want to if you hurt yourself, we you get you know sick somehow. You want that to be treated, and we're, we're actually pretty okay at that. But what we're not okay is stopping people getting sick in the first place. And given that's ninety percent of the burden of what appears in hospitals, it's sort of walking face of chronic disease. If anyone's been into a hospital in recent time, then yeah, you know, maybe just maybe uh, New Zealand could be one of the countries in the world that actually starts to think about health not sickness, because I, I think when we're talking about this, you're by and large talking about helping the sickness system do better, but I, I just don't think that's fit for purpose. Yeah. Who's next? Well, I thanks, Grant. I'll, I'll just comment on what Grant said, that obviously, you know, my background, 35 years operating my own holistic health clinic. So when I look at our public health system, I see an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff Uh, Most of the ambulances, of course, are now ramped at the hospital as opposed to being on the road. But nonetheless, an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff rather than a fence at the top of the cliff. So I think that there's so much more um, scope for an expansion of what wellness means within our public health system. And rather than just trying to patch up chronic disease, once it's actually happened, we need to move the focus back so much further to really focus on genuine nutrition, wellness, body, mind and spirit focus, um, exercise, screen prescription. There's so much we could do to stop people clogging up the waiting rooms when their bodies do break down. Jody. Well, I'm also looking at how we can stop the health system getting worse. So we've got a problem of a chronic disease as being just rife, rife through the system. And then we've also got mental illness, which is overlaying that. So metabolic illness, mental illness is overlaid. So there's legislation that's been passed that makes it ostensibly more difficult for nutritional supplements. So that needs to be repealed. We've got a WHO amendment coming through that will potentially be arbitrary because public health is actually quite, it's individual. It's also very, um, there are subpopulations that are at different forms of risk. So that that WHO moves are unable to really look at that. Um, then I also believe we've got to get uh, multi multinutrients uh, that have got cohort and clinical stu- um, studies be- behind them um, that have a low risk f- profile on pharmac. And I believe all children or um, all children of school age should have equal access either to psychiatric medications 
or to um, these particular multinutrients that have gone through the trials and um, and they, that should be of equal access. So right now there's no equity there. So those kids that are lower income can't get them. Um, and then I think there's, uh, there's there's things that we could put in place in, in clinics to help people shift away from the current dietary paradigm that they're on yep. and that would benefit metabolic and mental illness. That that's a huge cultural shift that has to be made, though, isn't it? Because you're yes. going against yeah. the marketing machine, the um, you know, instant gratif the the world of instant gratification. There's a whole lot of drivers there. Yeah, and and you, unfortunately, you, 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 you sit down with anyone, yeah, and go, what are your top priorities in life? And I've never met a single person who doesn't say health. Uh, that's why I just say it, though. <laughs> Isn't that's it? right. That's why they, we, you know, perhaps we need to give more help. I mean, the problem is, Paul, that, that you know, traditionally the left has been very, you know, strong at going. You know, there's some environmental things around this. You know, the food supply stuff was, you know, our left has recently completely lost its marble. So that's they can't do that. Um, the Greens have gone offshore, and. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're left with the right um, as the sort of only coherent people standing. And so now you're going, well, actually, you're going to have to start to think more like uh, public health people, which is actually, you know, the food supply is a problem. And I guess one thing that's actually encouraging is already they're going, yeah, our food's overpriced. We haven't got the right competition in here. Um, and, you know, we need to get something that anyone's been to an Aldi supermarket in Australia. You'll just go, well, you know, this stuff is cheaper. Um, because there's more competition, and maybe that would make a difference. Um, it was really clear, wasn't it, uh, given the COVID experience, we can talk about that as well, that uh, when there was virtually no talk about preventative health measures or things that could be done in real time at the time to improve people's health resilience, none of that was talked about whatsoever. It's like the tide was fully out on that. Yeah, I did an official information act request on that to understand and absolutely nothing. And then what they did, was, which was a little bit cunning, was for, for, say, vitamin D supplementation, they use clinical trials and they treat they tend to treat nutrients um, as if they've got a potential risk profile that is the same as uh, clinical drugs. So they, they put them through the same rigorous parameters and forget this long history of safe use. So we, so we couldn't see that. We've got all the algorithms algorithms in the world for for you know online searches but why can't we get algorithms together to sort of say how do we actually make this food more affordable when we look at the international auctions markets for well no one even said lose some weight i mean it's brutal but it's kind of true right yeah it, it was taboo to talk about the the the, num the, the number two uh, risk factors were age and obesity we were allowed to talk about age but we weren't allowed to talk about the, the obese elephant in the room, which was the reality. So much of our population has, has got, you know, um, clinically diagnosed obesity, and we weren't allowed to mention that. Not only that, but my experience, obviously, operating the Health Forum as a really large Facebook group, um, where I was repeatedly censored by Facebook for trying to talk about peer-reviewed science that was coming through in the, in the early days around the use of zinc, around the use of vitamin D. Um, and I would actually, I would have my 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 posts blocked and I would be removed from Facebook for one to four weeks for trying to talk about such things. So we're fighting a huge status quo monster, Grant. We're fighting that. <laughs> well, I mean, when I first heard about COVID and you know, none of us knew much about what was going on at the time, but you know, the very first thing to emerge is what we've just been talking about now, that obesity, then uh, diabetes and you know, poor metabolic health in general as sort of indicated by that metabolic syndrome were, were the main features of um, mortality. Of course, it's associated with age. So they went straight to age as a blunt instrument and protect the oldies and stuff, but it was that. Um, well, why weren't it, people calling to protect the obese? Well, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's just not politically correct, isn't it? But, 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 you know, I was excited about that. I was like, in, in one way, I was like, oh, well, okay, this is going to be so interesting because after, you know, two and a half decades of my career of 
you know, banging uphill to get, help people eat better and you know, move more and sleep better and these sorts of things. You know, we've we've only got worse as a country. Um, and you know, maybe it's not a diagnosis of diabetes. Maybe it's a fear of of a viral infection that's actually going to turn this tide. But you know, in the end, actually, as we've just heard, it didn't just go the other way. You know, any talk about actual health was banned. And you know, I think. We're talking about going forward, but yeah, we've got to look back out of, over our shoulder at the way we handled COVID and what we um, did about the debate around how um, I, I feel really strongly that public health um, should be done in public. Um, all of the decisions around health are, are both personal, they're individual in the sense that only you can make a judgment about the harms and benefits of different options, diet, activity, vaccines, and those sorts of things. But they're also collective because we need to invest together and agree what's important. Um, and, and when neither of those things happen, and that goes on for a number of years, and clearly more harm than good is done, especially to our young people, um, we, we have to make sure going forward um, that this type of activity doesn't happen again. And so yeah. that's the first thing we need to do when we're thinking about the future of our health system is just to, to make sure, and we need to get to the bottom. And I, you know, I frankly, I, I didn't vote for Winston, but I actually hope he has some clout here because he's the only one calling for a, a review of the vaccine. And I think that's in the COVID uh, debacle. And I think that's a really important thing as we go forward is that we do confront that as a society and talk about that. So I really hope that happens in the next 100 days. Linda, you uh, mentioned just before, um, I think, uh, did you say um, spirit and mental well-being? I can't remember the package, but in that area that you mentioned. Now, that seems to be not part of the health system. It's kind of <laughs> sort of out there, sort of fringy. But surely mm -hmm. that is part of the health system because if people are in a bad state of mind, mentally, spiritually, their health ain't going to benefit from that. Right. Oh, absolutely. No I mean, there's there's nothing fringy or conspiratorial about talking about mental health having, you know, real physical, organic um, sp negative spin-off that, you know, that's pretty much established, even though it's not necessarily strongly practiced within the, you know, Western pharmaceutical paradigm. It is acknowledged that the state of your mind changes the chemistry in your body and your biology. Um, and certainly with the people I work with, now, my clinic is closed now, so the, the people I work with now are um, in support of New Zealand's vaccine-injured and impacted New Zealanders, uh, you know, those who've lost their work through mandates, et cetera, or are actually vaccine-injured. And what I can say about those people, of which there are, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands if you include all the mandates their mental health at taking them as a group has has never been so uh fragmented and torn asunder as it is right now and it was interesting we started talking about what can we do to improve you know the state of public health well the people I spend all day talking to have completely lost all their faith in in the entire medical system, starting yeah. with their GP up, right, you know, right to the specialists in the hospitals. Um, and many of them are so traumatized by the experiences they've had, they've basically decided they're just doing it on their own from here on in. No more doctors, no more health systems. That you know, they'll live and die with with whatever happens to them um, outside yeah. of the medical system, which you know, as a problem in itself, right? They're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But I also understand where they're coming from. So one of the things that needs to happen is there needs to be a serious acknowledgement of what's happened to these people. There needs to be reparation, be it both emotional and financial. And they need to be invited back into the fold and, and assured that this will never happen to good, honest New Zealanders again. So that we can has, rebuild that trust. Yeah, that that the mental um, health has been used um, as a weapon too, hasn't it? Because I've talked to people who have gone to professionals here, doctors, medical professionals, and said, "Hey, I got a problem here," and they've been told that it's in their head. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's been turned back and fired back offensively at them. 
Well, that's um, very much what we've seen with actual acute vaccine injury. So a lot of the people that I've worked with um, have had almost immediate adverse events, you know, chest pain, breathlessness, palpitations. They've presented often in an ambulance to um, accident and emergency to hospital and and almost without exception, and there are hundreds of them, the first thing they're told is that they're having an anxiety attack. The injection is safe and effective. This is not a vaccine injury. They have anxiety. So that's where the gaslighting starts, yeah. you know, yeah. from the very first contact with the system. Jody, can, I, can I just add on, oh, add on that, or just to finish that thing? I mean, my 21-year-old son getting compulsorily vaccinated so he could keep his job in Surf Life Saving New Zealand um, you know, ended up unconscious on the pharmaceutical floor oh. you know, for oh, an wow. hour or so. No no ambulance could come Oof. because they just sacked a whole bunch. Um, when he was eventually hospitalised and eventually um, released a day or two later, they diagnosed him with dehydration, you know, so incompetently with dehydration. It's just... Dehydration. It's, oh, it's just big belief. My that point, this, exactly. That, that <laughs> it makes your point with a story that's very... I'm real for me. Yeah. Jody, what happens if you get a mass, um, colla- a collapse on mass of confidence in a nation's health system from a sociological point of view? That can't be good. Well, there's two shifts. There's a shift away. And if you have a medicalized system, which is what we have, so the, the parameters that they follow to say that their targets are being set are based on screening, on um, immunisation or vaccination and how quickly they move people through the hospital system. So they're very medicalized. So if you're looking at collapse in trust and then you're looking at, because, you know, as Sir Geoffrey Palmer says, and I've said, and and, but, and Andrew Butler, New Zealand is style of government is authoritarian. Mm. The only shift you can have is towards coercion. Okay, so that doesn't surprise you, considering that. Well, well the we've got precedent here. We've also got children um, in Australia increasingly not being able to attend school if they're not vaccinated. And in this paradigm, we can't see, we can't judge the health status of children based on different vulnerabilities or other in targeted interventions that could be could happen because they're outside this medical mindset, this medical framework. And just and just further to what Linda was saying, because I'm really my focus was on young people people under 25s in this pandemic that were never at risk. And what I, at a, at a party on the weekend, I was talking to a pharmacist and I said, what's shocking you about the patterns you're seeing at the moment? And she said, it's the school-aged children from eight up on medication for anxiety and depression. Really? That's the pattern she's seeing, the uptick in that. Is yeah. it even responsible to prescribe humans of that age, this stuff anyway? I think what happens is you get good clinical psychologists and psychiatrists that can't see any other other framework for them to work with. We don't have funding, for example, where we have resourcing for so there's pretty there's a huge amount of evidence for uh, nutrition for reversing mental health and what nutrition also does is you know for example you know Rutledge and Co have seen this with pandemics with um, traumatic events including um, floods and the the mosque attack is when people have a good amount of nutrition they recover from trauma more quickly okay yeah and so and they've just released another a, a recent paper for um depression and anxiety that says that when they on are on the multinutrients versus a placebo they they uptick faster so we have such huge so you think about these young people and you look at the adverse effects which include suicidal ideation and um and um erectile dysfunction Whereas the multinutrients don't have that, so that's one of the you know this is a clear policy where young people could access this, but right now it's only the people that can afford the hundred bucks for um, the, what's called daily essential nutrients. So yet you yet you go on a fear campaign, which is going to make people push them into that zone. That's what happened. 
Yeah, yep. and and you treat you know mental health is a it's a combination of you know trauma and environmental pressures and but it, nutrition plays an important role and so this is dovetailing with all the the, the pre diabetes that you know for example Grant seeing and and the diabetes and reversing that and there's just such beautiful evidence that's coalescing here. Let's talk about nutrition then, Grant. If you um, okay, there's the first hundred days probably not going to get anything of anything. That's um, that's big picture done in a hundred days, but uh, over the course of some years, how do you how do you focus the minds of the national health system on way more on nutrition? Who who do you have to appeal to? Who has to have the buy in to make a difference? Well, there's a few things. I think you could do something in the first hundred days. The first that okay. we've all talked about now is that th- that therapeutic. Um, Goods Act that just repeal oh. that straight away, so that okay. um, yeah. and and Pharmac has considered um, Professor Julia Rutledge's work and they said, yeah, we can see merit in this, but they haven't got to the point of actually doing anything decent with it or funding it. And so right there, those sort of essential nutrients and the robustness that they give the people who take them to be more resilient to, to stresses and strains and anxieties are you know, convincing without... So that, there's all that. Second of all, um, I think... One thing National said they're going to do is, which I thought I hadn't heard much about, but I saw written up recently, is they're going to straight away repeal the 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 stuff around the um, health star rating, you know, which is just a complete debacle of endorsement of ultra processed food, you know, run by Sanitarium and Kellogg's and and you know the Food and Grocery Council to you know to put to put healthy stars on, you know, pretty much the most crappy food that you can buy in the supermarket, you know, Nutrigrain and um, you know, up and yeah. goes with the same kind of volume of sugar. sugar. Yeah, yeah, it's just nonsense. so that's going to go. So those are that's good, and 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 that needs to move out of the Ministry of Primary Industries into um, health. And if yeah. it was going to go into the Ministry of Health um, and or the Health Promotion Agency or, or those types of things, then they would need staff and budgets with some expertise in in food and nutrition. And that, there isn't any. Uh, we don't have that in in our current uh, government and so the only expertise at all which is endorsing fake food sits in the Ministry of Prime Industries so it's you know the whole thing would need to change in some way and then they would need to seek I mean it's clear that our guidelines around what is healthy food and governments do have guidelines and you wonder why governments might you know say anything about what we should eat but you know to the extent that they have we've actually had that wrong for a few decades the sort of uh, you know low-fat revolution that led to the ultra-processed food revolution. Anyone in here has just walked past someone in the supermarket, have a glance down in the trolley and go, oh, my gosh. Mm. Um, um, but, you know, most of these things have actually got healthy things written on them, you know, vegetable chips. and So people uh, think they're doing the right thing, but it's... Yeah, the, I, I, you know, I, I, and, I, and I talk to a lot of people all the time about their diet, and they think they're doing the right thing, but the advice handed down in schools, in prisons, in hosp- hospitals will be amongst the worst, um, you know, on these guidelines, which are actually the exact opposite of what humans were made to eat, um, governments can change those quite quickly, and this government should. I, I just noticed, uh, because I've had a couple of experiences of the health system, had a heart issue last year, got a bypass, and went through that whole process. And the emergency side of it, great. They they deal with it you know, mechanically, beautifully. No one said anything about what I should be eating. Nothing. And then they take you to hospital and try and kill you with the food they serve to you. I mean, <laughs> hospital food is just, it, it, it's just inedible. You know, white bread, jam, ice blocks loaded with sugar. I, I've had family members that have had extens- extensive periods of time in hospital. And we as a family go out of our way to bring their food in, to bring them salads and homemade, you know. So they don't know what healthy food is, really. But the well, health system doesn't know what healthy food is. No, no. And maybe okay. it's maybe it's incredibly cheaper to serve up, you know, the unhealthy stuff in hospital than it is to give patients healthy food that will. Isn't actually... the raw food that you buy in the supermarket? It seems to me to be the the cheapest. Yeah, it so, is. Yeah. When when you buy it in the supermarket, a carrot is, you know, cheaper than. Mind you, carrots are one of the few vegetables that are affordable now. Most of them are very expensive. Yeah, yeah. So you'd expect some sort of nutrition element 
to be swung in behind you as part of the team. I would have thought in the in the in the new health system. Another yes. connection that that it can be associative is, for example, home economics could be made compulsory from year six to year nine. And we used to do that- it. I remember. That that compulsory home economics right now, it's funded, um, as I was told by home economics teacher, with sugar and wheat and and the budget for fresh vegetables because fresh vegetables are by and large more expensive is is very limited. So we could actually turn home economics into a disease prevention machine. We could look at mitochondria and, you know. Yeah, now we're talking. Yeah, from intermediate level. exciting and meaningful. Which is ten or eleven? Yeah, and, and several years of it. Uh, all my boys have done home economics, but you're right; it's it's mainly making muffins. But still, yeah, yeah that, that's a that, that's a great intervention point early. Yeah, and it's yeah. already set up. And, and teach and teach children how to cook and get them off the Uber Eats treadmill that is just around the corner when they move into their first flat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but the, but the funding needs to be there. And I, I, I have actually worked out how to fund, for example, um, you know, because the model the model of um, Glen and reversal down in Topor with yeah. um, wrapping around people as they as they gain skills. Because we can we can talk about cheap food in the supermarket, but if people are coming home from a, an eight to ten hour day and they're already actually ill, they're unwell, they're exhausted, they're fatigued, they're not sleeping well. It's very very and and we know that there's a recent paper came out talking about the the addiction level in the human population based on addiction to ultra-processed food, is roughly similar to addiction levels for, for example, alcohol. Yeah. So it's very hard to shift away um, from ultra-processed and white food, like white rice, white wheat, white sugar diets that have that addictive potential in them. Is alcohol a factor? Because it seems to me that New Zealanders consume quite a bit of alcohol. Well, it, does, mean, more harm than, it does more harm than good. It's yeah. not to say that it's not... Um, quite good fun having a beer. Oh no, it's fun! But if you're having a drinking a bottle of wine every night, a lot of people do. Well, N equals yeah. one. I hundred percent. I I didn't crave alcohol as much once I improved radically changed my diet. So my cravings okay. dropped off. So I was reading some research the other day that shows that in New Zealand and lots of other developed Western nations, young people, teenagers, and those in their early twenties are moving away from alcohol. In quite significant numbers. Oh, okay. It's becoming uncool to where drink they a get, lot and What get are they wasted. going to? Because no one My gives everything up. My concern is that there's a massive amount of those kids on psychiatric medications that might have not have been ten or twenty years ago. Right. Yeah. I, I get my talking about addiction, addictive things here. We've mentioned um, alcohol. We've mentioned ultra-processed food. Um, you know, another thing that we should do immediately, in my mind, is around vaping. Um, you know, it's it's endemic in our younger population. Uh, one of my sons went to a 21st just the other day, and he said of the 60-odd people there, there was only three or four of them that weren't vaping. Yeah, I think you're um, right. Yep. And, and, you know, part of the problem with this, I mean, is, you know, it's probably going to do, you know, quite a bit of damage to your lungs and that sort of thing. But I'm I'm more concerned about the psychological effects. When, when you... When you're dependent on, and people remember this from the cigarette days, right? You smoke a cigarette, your dopamine goes up, you feel good, um, but the system calibrates downwards so that in the end, you're in a bit of pain and the only way to relieve it, to you know, get back to normal that you and I are at is to smoke a cigarette. Yep. Now, you know, vaping's almost worse than that purely because you can get more nicotine in for longer. Um, and the problem when that dopamine's downregulated, you, you don't feel pleasure. In the same way, so you know, kissing your wife, petting your dog, going for a run, doing your homework, uh, you know, going and doing some sports—none of them confer any pleasure anymore. And and you know, then you've got a society that's in trouble. We, I, I think, feel very strongly we should do something about about vaping. What do you do uh, though? Because um, you, you know, you make it a prescription talk- medicine. Okay. Yeah. That's my view. I'm not because sure people it, agree with that, but uh, I've smoked before and I've vaped before. I don't do anything anymore. But um, it, it seems to me that uh, vaping is an, is the endless cigarette that never yeah. never goes out. At least back in the smoking days, it would go out. There would be gaps. 
<laughs> this is always on. And the ingredients in a vape are yeah. food grade. So we don't really put food grade substances in the lungs. Mm. No, it's not really a thing, is it? And mm. another addiction, addiction that's causing mayhem and that never goes out is screen addiction. Mm. My grandson has yeah. just got his first cell phone and he came to stay with us over the school holidays, um, which is usually a lovely, peaceful, joyful event. And I couldn't believe how much strife came into our lives with him turning up with a cell phone. It was shocking, you know, me trying to put boundaries in and him resisting and, uh, you know, doing things like taking his cell phone off to the public toilet block because we're living in a caravan at the moment right. um, through, through our choice. And, you know, him taking his phone because he knew grandma was watching and saying, put that down and pick up a book. So I think screens just bring immense mayhem into families, uh, you know, into social structures and they do the same thing, don't they, as the vaping? They give you that dopamine. They downregulate dopamine. Downregulate. They absolutely do. Yeah. They absolutely do that. There's no question about that. And a recent study with medical students where they uh, were able to get them down several hours a day on their screen use, and they had you know quite substantial improvements in their mental health. And there is a policy that we could enact that would help that. So uh, children or uh, teenagers, for example, if we were to say up until NCEA level, should not be required to do any homework at home that involves a screen. That's uh, Yeah, okay, yeah. Wow. Because at night time, this is when you start getting the problem of melatonin and screen. Yeah, blue light and all this stuff, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so use of even cell phones or devices has to be thought of as a public health measure measure, or a health system comes into the purview of the health system. It's another drug. If Basically, screen use is another drug if, if, if it gets away with you or on your, on you, you know, it takes over your life yeah, and changes the, your mental health. The only way to make that work is to, Someone said before, you know, it, it's not cool anymore. Um, you, you've got to try and make it not cool anymore. That's hard. Yeah. And also, you do end up with a political situation, right? Like, I'm, you know, by and large, I'd say I'm a sort of centrist libertarian. I, you know, I think the less the government gets involved, the better. Yet here I am in health going, well, we should do this and should do this. And, you know, the question, have we got a role to play there? And I think... You know, at one level, people understand that you're not going to be selling cigarettes and vapes to 10-year-olds and, and they're not going to be, you know, there needs to be some restriction on alcohol and you need to put your seatbelt on. So we understand that. But the question is, are there other powerful things in society that, you know, really just going to be better off having some restriction on and, um, you know, the government's got a role to play. And you know, politically, I feel a tension within myself on that. But, you know, from the evidence, I just go, yes, bring it on. Well, I, I would put it in, in perspective that these are technologies. So stewarding technologies is part of how social and political and legal life. So these have been introduced and many of them have addictive potential. So, you know, Pigovian taxes, you know, were, you know, tax alcohol and then we'll have money for other things, you know. And so, so we can actually look at these as a public health concern and as a technology that we need to look at somewhat sceptically and is that technology there for the good of my 5-year-old, my 10-year-old, my 15-year-old or my 21-year-old and how do we how do we understand that socially and unfortunately the media the fourth estate aren't addressing this issue nor is our shadow ministers in government. So we're left with sort of creating informational networks about this outside this, the, the traditional fourth estate and traditional communication networks. Yeah. What about alternative treatments, Linda? There are all sorts of, um, you know, pills for this and that, and uh, there's the medicalization of of everything. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that there are other ways of doing things that are are not part of our health system, even though I think there's enough body of evidence around now to show that, um, you know, that there are effective alternatives to the the machine, the mechanism that, that seems yeah. to operate at the moment. So how much of that can be part of a reinvented health system? And who do you, again, who has to have the buy-in or do you have to change the people? Is it... 
I mean, uh, is the establishment ever going to accept that there are other ways of doing things? Uh, the, the New Zealand establishment appears to be a, a heck of a long way from accepting that, but it's not the case all around the world. For example, um, when I had my clinic uh, as a registered acupuncturist, one of my focuses was caring for pregnant women at all aspects of fertility and pregnancy and birth. And and in China, um, in Scandinavia, in Holland, I believe in Germany, people like me are integrated into the care paradigm and the hospital system. So in those countries, you see your uh, your midwife and she does, you know, the blood pressure and the checks and everything. And then you probably see your acupuncturist in the same place and you have a preventative health acupuncture session with that person. And there, there's absolute screeds of um, clinical trial data to show that that makes a huge difference to the uh, to the outcome of the pregnancy in terms of preventing premature birth, um, uh, you know, high blood pressure in mothers, um, rapid recovery and mental health recovery post birth. So that's that's one obvious change that we could. Yes, it will cost the system to have people like me in there. I'm retired. I'm not touting for work, but people, you know, like I used to be. But it will save the system so much more money in the long run by having us there. So that's one of the, you know, the simple obvious things that I think of. But the thinking has to change. Oh, there has yes. to be some way of changing the thinking first, right? I mean, well, yes, absolutely. And unfortunately, holistic health practitioners in New Zealand are still considered in in the quack box. You know, no matter whether we have degrees from universities and postgraduate degrees, we're in the quack, quack box, um, you know, the same place that the, quote, anti-vaxxers live, those people that have done the research and decided that it's not for them. So I don't know quite how you change that thinking. Maybe Jodie and Grant have got some ideas because um, I was totally unsuccessful in my 35 years. Okay. Any other ideas? Well, I suppose... I suppose you know, one thing to think about is that you know, there's only two countries that sort of allow pharmaceutical companies to openly advertise. That's New Zealand and, and the United States. Uh, British Medical Journal published just this week a, a study showing that uh, about $2 billion a year is spent in the US in, in payments from the pharmaceutical industry to oncologists to recommend uh, mostly inferior treatments that are not recommended. Uh, and so you've got you know, part of the reason that uh, treatments that aren't pharmaceutical uh, are marginalised is, is purposeful behaviour by pharma the pharmaceutical industry, both here um, and probably more especially. So in those incentives, are, exactly the same those incentives to like oncologists, doctors, whoever. Do you yeah. think they're they're being operated? It's being operated that way here as well. Given that we're doing the advertising, I, 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 I don't. I don't think in the same cash front way, but I think yeah. there's still, you know, if, if anyone and I, I present regularly at the the uh, general practice conference in uh, Rotorua and Christchurch every year, and you know what astonishes me is what I call the drug hall, uh, which is this massive conglomerate of stuff of people giving stuff away, and uh, just you know the influence that that sector is able to, to place on medicine is an astonishing thing. Just you know, just just an incredible thing. Um, you know, no one who's doing anything else can afford to either do research like they can, advocacy like they can, um, or political manipulation like they can. And so, you know, this is a real elephant in the room. Uh, but it's a, it's not just one elephant. It's lots of elephants, and they're charging. It's, it's hard to know how to stop them. Any ideas on how to stop, Jody? Well, if I were looking at that, you've got to look at the whole chain. So in medical school, these poor buggers are taught medicines they're taught toxicology and medicine so you know they might get one or two weeks of nutrition and 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 i've spoken to someone many people with medicines medical degrees and they acknowledge that in their university lives they looked down at supplements and nutrition because that was what they were taught to do so they're yeah. they're in you know they're, they're encouraged to think 
that this is not as evidence-based. Meanwhile, of course, in the scientific literature, there is just so much, so much data. Then, of course, you go, you look at um, the, the Medicines Act and now the Therapeutic Products Act. We have to understand that nutrition can be reverse engineered, nutritional supplements. They're not hidden under a patent. So anyone going and applying for to get a, you know, to get a, to get a supplement recognized sufficiently so it can get onto Pharmac are going to go through extraordinary costs for something that is, even if it's demonstrated to be low risk, I'm talking, you know, maybe like a tiny headache or something, which is nothing compared to suicidal ideation. There are no parameters or processes for the lower risk stuff to come through. So that's, that's you know, that's through the, you know, the legal frameworks don't let this stuff come through. And then, of course, we have the funding budgets for research. So my, you know, my master's is on looking at how hard it is for scientists to get research looking at endocrine disruption and um and it's very clear that these associate professors and professors would struggle to get research funding unless it was connected to an to ip to a patent to an innovation yeah so that the research, it's all about the ip everything the yeah is, is, so it's anyone saleable item nutrition will struggle to get funded because i'm sorry but mb wrote the policy you know, and then you've got um, funding panels struggling because there's not enough money. So they push down anything that's not exactly in scope. And whenever you look at, when you look at therapies or therapeutics, when you look at nutrition, when you look at um, uh, therapeutic supplements, you'll, you'll get multiple pathways being impacted. So there's not like one molecular pathway. So the, the, the experts on the funding panel struggle because, well, how do we rate Ex, how, how do we get an expert looking at this? So you can see from education through the law and policy, through the funding of research, this stuff is just pushed down so much. And, and so it's no wonder that the Ministry of Health is really a Ministry of Medicine. So the training, fundamental doctor training, medical training needs to be reinvented, right? So yeah, and, and how hard course, is that? How hard I is that really? Who writes the, the, the coursework and where that information for the coursework comes from should be scrutinised as well. So so we oh, could write oh, a new yeah. curriculum could we? that would encompass all of that, probably take about the same amount of time to learn as it does now and uh, and and reset the thing. Sorry, Grant, go. Yeah, I mean, there's a brutal reality to this, and it's the Max Planck, the physicist, that, you know, things move one funeral at a time. I mean, Professor Rod Jackson, who you know, was pretty outspoken during COVID, I mean, I know for a fact because his students text me that he puts a photo of me up in his lectures as sort of the devil incarnated. And, you know, these guys have talked about healthy fats and, you know, they're pushing us towards eating butter and, you know, um, these things are not margarine. And, you know, these these guys are basically causing widespread death and destruction around New Zealand. And, you know, the next breath that, you know, 6% of people with COVID will die. So, you know, it's just completely out to lunch. Um, in my opinion, so people um, have to disappear. But they're not going away. Yeah, they have to disappear before the <laughs> we can reshuffle the deck. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, but it just yeah, they're still teaching. My photo's still going up every year. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that that depends on how you look at that, I suppose. Um, what what about um, you mentioned you mentioned MB before, um, Jody? Um, you know. The bureaucrats here. Does there need to be some kind of reset at the bureaucracy level, like big time? Yeah, I wanted to do a um, public health, my master's in public health, but I saw that basically everyone in public health was dealing with medication and and policy and medication, they, you know, vaccines and, and all that sort of thing. And so I saw that there was no place for someone in public health with a critical perspective you have to fit in you have to do you know you have to follow the paradigm so it's it's a very broken system um, there, we, we could hope that potentially the maori health authority might actually step away from that but it depends if there's enough funding because of course you've got to have funding to change a paradigm when so you say step away uh, what would be driving that uh, a different kind of attitude to what is health what is life well exactly and so the framework is there for wrapping around family you know and 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 care there so that they could very likely shift but for example so just to, to briefly talk about the who amendments which is the 27 29th 
28th of November, yep. the Māori Health Authority said to Cabinet, we actually think this is the, we, we've got to say no to these amendments or we've got to consider them heavily because they could impact. Well, they said Māori. the time was too short, I know that. Yeah, and, and the Māori Health Authority have basically been wiped, ignored and sidelined by Cabinet and Cabinet's response. So That's surprising because that you usually have to hit a high bar for that to happen. Mm-hmm. So they're doggedly glued to it. Well, basically, the the gov- I, I suppose the outgoing government no, it's so it used to be tacit acceptance of a WHO IHR amendment, International Health Regulation Amendment, because it was always non-binding. We could take them or leave. Yeah, but them. it's going to be binding. We didn't need to actually say it's this. You know, we need to agree. They've kept that whole tacit agreement model, which is so fabulous. And now they're saying these are going to be binding for, for example, for a pandemic. And what's what's sort of insidious about the the no, end of November Article 59 amendments is they they shrink future timeframes. So that's that's quite bad because if we are in a democracy, we need time to consider things so we can then reject them or accept them. But they're shrinking them, and so this is reducing. It's well, that's to force the function. That okay. tried to that tried to force the function by limiting time, aren't yeah. they? So it's, and it's it's mission creep. It's absolute mission creep because, of course, pandemics used to be based on hospitalisation and death. Now they're based on infectivity. That was this pandemic was announced based. Well, on even infectivity. it's even worse than that. Just that the, there could be one. And more than that, it's not just infectious agents. It's the pandemic protocols can now be extended out to um, cover things, you know, climate events that will have an impact on the globe. Yeah, that's big time mission creep. That that's out of medicine. That that's a real creep. Yeah, they are creeps. Oh, did I say that? (laughs) Well, it's out of scope of democracy. That's what it is because it's not undergoing a process. Which is, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with that. Yeah, but the politicians and the citizenry, those well, those who are aware have a problem with it, but there aren't too many of of those, it seems, unless I'm missing something. Well, well nobody's aware. You mentioned all this. Yeah. Sorry. So few people are Sorry, aware you mentioned that. All this and, and, and... Sorry, Grant, you go ahead. I was just going to go, that you, you mentioned any of this, you know, even several months ago, and you were like, you, you're a complete, you know, cooker as far as anyone was concerned. Um, and, and then it just turns out to be true and was true the whole time. You and know, once again, <laughs> the media is not discussing it. The media is not discussing it. Yeah, why would they leave that alone? That's the biggest story on the planet. Yeah. Well, I guess it benefits, know. you know, private interests really, doesn't it? Well, do journalists really want to have their travel limited? Because that's what it's going to be. That's going to be one of the obvious mm. signs, unless you're holding up the thing, the QR code. All right. Um Let's get uh, to um, what works, because, Linda, you'll be able to give us a good uh, heads up on this. Let's say we went to a kind of, not totally, but some sort of alternative system, which takes into account the emer- emergency medicine, you know, the heart attack, you cut it off, and, and that sort of stuff that, you know, that revives you right there and, and, and lets you live. But also to have a health system instead of a sickness system. How, what are the gains we could make, do you think? Oh, you know, from my perspective, the gains are immense. I I spent my whole career um, enabling, educating, empowering people to to build health in a way that they they've never um, been able to do previously. Got them out of the treadmill model of you know chronic illness and polypharmacy. Started right with the basics, one tiny change, one bite of the elephant at a time. Um, education, support, empowerment, and it's incredible what you can do with the most basic changes. You know, getting people to start. I used to do things, for example. And it sounds pathetically simple, but it really is a fundamental building block. I would get people to do things like um, start walking, parking their car further away, or getting off a bus right. stop. Okay, you know, yeah. two stops before work, and and walking the last fifteen minutes, and just something like that. People then come back after a couple of weeks and say, oh, "I'm actually really enjoying that, and I'm I'm breathing more easily, and I feel that you know I'm I could even start going for a bit of a walk at night." So just tiny 
tiny incremental changes that are cheap and have profound spin-off effects because something like 15 minutes of walking a day will achieve more for you if you keep that up than 12 different drugs with no yeah. side effects. We'd have to have some sort of campaign like um, there was, you know, demonizing tobacco, right? Because that was effective. That worked. You know it when your kids are saying, Dan, you, you, not, you shouldn't be doing that. You know that it's worked. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you know, some of the stuff that we spoke about before, bringing home economics back into school, but the kind of nutrition that Grant's talking about, not not the paradigm that, we, that you know, we're taught here with, with um, going for, um, you know, processed fats, low fat, high carb. We, w- we want to implement genuine nutrition with with a sound basis, the kind of stuff that Grant talks about. Um, teach children how to cook, um, you know, make fruits and vegetables affordable, um, take how junk do do truck shops. How do you do that? I don't know. How do you do that? Jody? have you got any ideas? Well, it's called the appropriations budget. So, you know, if they can put – so <laughs> – 2022-23, they had 4.5 million set aside for fluoridation of drinking water, and they just miraculously changed that to 9 million this year. So we can start off by reversing the uh, the fluoridation bill, and then that's nine bills, nine million dollars that could start off, you know, that's being invested start. into schools. Um, but but the appropriations budget is there for us, and at, at if we don't look at the the cost benefit of reversing multifactorial diseases and recognizing that most people that who have a chronic illness are on multiple medications yeah. and and that the costs are scalar so this is and this is something you know that the productivity commissioner actually could look at this because we know that productivity is low in new zealand and i i heard that one of the heads of waikato university going we've got this poor performance you know these kids aren't doing well we don't know what's happening so there's so many reasons to actually look at the appropriations budget and invest in this sort of thing so fund more healthy food some way supplement families well, it's, it's- Education, it's, it's shifting the, the price of some, and, and of course we've got the Nova score. The Nova, what's the word for it, Grant? That that shows us the ultra, um, yeah, the ultra processed food score, Nova. Yes, yeah. So we can we can work out what what products are not processed, and we can take the take the tax off them, or we can make them more affordable. And I know that debate is going on in New Zealand, but. Australia's been able to differently tax, you know, fruit and veggies. But if we, but more importantly, the skills in cooking, the skills in in supporting people moving forward, and um, and that can that can help the pivot. That can really help the pivot. That funding. My impression and- when uh, policies were announced, I'm thinking of the Labor policy, GST off fresh fruit and frozen. It turned out to be a bit messy. Vegetables. <laughs> that seemed to be though more about people having problems affording food than, you know, getting people onto healthier food. Even then they weren't on the health push, were they? We have a complex discussion and and the, the, the sound bites in the media have have not afforded a complex policy discussion on this area. If we were to reinvent the health system and deploy it seriously like we really meant it, how long do you think it would take, okay, you said earlier, Grant, that we can do stuff in 100 days, yeah, the stuff that we can do. But to start to see measurable effects that are starting to, well, improve the health but also save some money because all you ever hear about the health system is, well, it's a black hole and we could spend endlessly on it. I don't necessarily believe that's the case because there's only 5 million so people in the country, size of a big city in the world. But um, surely we can... We can deliver all this and get a better result, and it will cost us less. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I, we've we've been doing. I tell you what, we've been doing over the last few years. Um, yeah, we started training health coaches and mental health coaches, and you know, the organisation I work for, Precure, has trained fourteen hundred of those over the last three years, um, and, and they make an enormous difference. And, and some of the early adopters have been, especially the Pacific communities, Pacific and Medical Association, these places, and they. You're getting your social workers and stuff to now know really about health and you know do it in the communities. And we run a, we ran a trial in uh, in Papatoi with 120 diabetics, and we were able to get 
you know, 10 point change in HbA1c and, you know, reverse a third of the people's diabetes diagnosis. Yet no That's one, incredible. it's not a news story. It's, it's not a, it's, it's not an anything story. No one's interested. We've done it all ourselves. No, no one cares. Um, and we've talked about our, our health workforce not working. So we're just, you know, there's people doing this. But I, I just feel like we're alone, frankly. Um, and I feel if you wouldn't talk to the government, which we have, they just they just can't even fathom what you're talking about. Just not, not even any concept, none. What if you so grabbed them by the lapels and shook them really hard? Do you think that, that would help? <laughs> you, well, they'll be wearing ties now, so that'll help. You're not alone, Grant. You are not alone. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a media, a mainstream or legacy media that are unwilling to address the issue that you're facing. And I know for probably about 15 years, if I send an op-ed to the media that conflicts or contradicts with government policy, they are far less likely to carry it. In fact, they usually won't. I know Is that some... because they're indebted to food promotion companies and for their advertising and their revenue? We can just say it's management's policy. Um, and I know scientists that also they, they resort to um, getting published in Australia because they can't get published here. So we know that there's been a silencing in the New Zealand media of contrary opinions when it comes to health and um, environmental chemicals to pollutant chemicals and nutrition. So I think if, you know, the public out there, you know, it's really, really would be so excited by the pre-cure model. I I absolutely believe it. Me too. Well, well, training up 1400s, I mean, that's a good figure in of itself and that's just at the small end, right? I mean, you could scale that up big time. Mm. Yeah, and we've done that without a cent of or any interest from the government. So, yeah, I think they yeah. continue. Hey, I've got one question for us all because I think it's a really interesting thing coming up. I just want to know what people think. So, on the third of November, the emergency vaccine thing runs out, which coincidentally is the same day that the government, your government, would take over. I don't know. We why were that wondering about is. that. Is isn't that a what, what's going to happen? <laughs> like what what's going to happen? It's like hitting the emergency stop on the train, right? Well. What's what's going to happen? I, I I personally don't think that it's a coincidence at all that it's November the third. I think the the exiting government has passed the baby and the bathwater over to the the new government that's coming in. Um, if nothing happens and that expires, it's illegal to administer a dose of COVID injection that's right. after the third of November. So I believe that they will most likely extend the provisional consent. I can't see that they can do it any other way. They can't give it a full consent because there are still too many unanswered questions, missing data, missing research, lack of long-term you know, safety and efficacy data. So I think they'll just squeeze it out. If they need Winston, presumably Winston's saying, uh-uh. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I can't wait. Because there's been no explanation. Has no. To- because uh, that I mean, comes. Fr- to- that's, that's on Friday. Yeah, that's right. That's tomorrow. Away. Tomorrow. Yeah, um, as per this. <laughs> so some big handbrake or, or turnaround or something but has the, to be either released problem- or kept on in the next 24 hours. But when will the new government be sworn in? Because the caretaker government, won't it just lapse? What, you mean the the the, the date and the, yeah, the ending of the provision? Yeah, because... Well, the the caretaker government's there until they're actually sworn in, so that won't happen for a while. Yeah, but can they, I don't know, are there limitations as to what legislation they... We, You know, they could instruct the caretaker government, so this is where it gets a little bit cunning. The caretaker government could just roll it over by themselves, I I presume. Well, we don't know, really, do we? And so that's the same thing for the WHO, um, that the Article 59 amendments. They, they, the, the caretaker government can be instructed to to delay the response. So but we they should have done it by now because it's only a well, day and a bit. Well, Labor wasn't wanting to do that, so Labor didn't do it. They, that's Labor why there's been no explanation. Already, there's obviously agreed. There's <laughs> obviously an issue between between um, whoever it was the Ministry of Health or, or whatever. And and the reason or, or this date that means that we can't kind of talk about it. 
media could talk about it, but they don't. No, they I know, but, but, about it. but they're not talking about it. I mean, you haven't got the caretaker government saying, oh, we really think we should roll this over a day out. And we're in a no man's land. End of uh, Friday, we should have those specials. And and it's probably going to be that Winston is needed. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot riding on Winston. Yeah, who ever would have thought that you're saying that a lot of the country's health future depends on <laughs> Winston? Who would have ever said that? But if he's going to be true to what he campaigned on and where he got support, which got him over the line to where he is now, if he's in, okay, it might not be that the specials turn out that way, but I think the feeling is either it's going to be very close or he's he's going to be needed for this government. He yeah. has to stop this, doesn't he? Oh, I don't think he has any chance whatsoever of stopping a, an extension of provisional consent. That's just not going to happen. That happens on the 3rd. But I am hoping that one of his biggest um, bargaining chips will be pushing vehemently for an independent and revised Royal Commission of Inquiry into um, our COVID response. Because I was I was reading the outline of, of the current one again today, ready for this talk, and basically, it, they make it very clear the whole way through that the the Commission of Inquiry is about learning how we can further strengthen all of the things that we did this time. So around. do it even harder. Go even <laughs> do harder. Do it even yeah, yeah, harder. That's what yeah. the that's what the the inquiry is about, and and not a word. But who can... who would head such an inquiry in New Zealand? Who would do that? I asked Winston be, that, and he didn't and he didn't have really have an answer. He just said an independent person. But are there any? I, I believe if we structured the terms of reference around an independent inquiry to permit people to look at these issues and then required the public to participate and funded, because of course it comes down to funding, fund enough resources for the public to participate and for that feedback to be considered, which of course it's not being, you know, select committees tend to dismiss the public's um, issues if it's not directly concerning the legislation or text in front of them. But I, I believe that we we would find people because I think, you know, like so many, so many people out there were absolutely supportive of the injection because they, they considered that the injection would be as safe as the, the injections that they that they were traditionally familiar with. So I think many, many more people than we suspect now regard- well, there's eleven thousand in the health sector for a start. Yeah, now eleven thousand and five. Very circumspectly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there is a precedent for that. If I remember, when the Labor government came in in eighty four, didn't they have an economic summit where a whole lot of people came and actually sat down in the Chamber of Parliament for two or three days? Everyone had a say, and it was kind of mapping out. I mean, they already knew what they wanted to do, but it it was a great theatrical display. Let's say of you know, we've got a problem. Um, New Zealand can't carry on like this. Everyone needs to have a say. Let's, you know, and it was all televised and everything. Let's do it this way. We could do something like that. And, and imagine the Royal Commissioners going on a bus through New Zealand and um, meeting people in town halls to hear what people say. That'd be crowded. That'd be, that'd be huge. That would be a fine thing. And then imagine the the media reporting honestly on it <laughs> well um, spoken at the meetings uh, there's a lot of people in the, in the current media who would have to um fess up to their behavior i don't know if they can, might have to have a whole change of shift could this inquiry okay this is probably a good place to end could something like that be the actual reset moment for then charting a new course for a health system it Absolutely. definitely would be a reset moment for engendering and, and restoring the trust that I was talking about, the broken trust, because if it was done honestly, openly, transparently, and covering the issues that we really want to know about. We want to know about the safety of the injection. We want to know about the efficacy. We want to know why people lost their jobs, why it was mandated, why people's medical exemptions were declined, even after they were injured after the first dose. That's cruel. If those things were addressed openly and transparently and reported on by the media, it would go a significant distance towards Well, then we can trust. say you can clearly see none of this worked. We're doing it all wrong, and that's the health system actually in total. We and, need to reset it, and this is what and, we need to do. 
Exactly. And the response, of course, if you look at public health is, is human. So, it, you know, we've got age stratified risk, we've got health status, we've got, you know, environment, family. And that's why, you know, public health principles always involve consideration of these issues and balancing cost and benefit at the local level. And so if this Royal Commission was honest, it would have to look at the traditional principles of public health and consider whether these may have informed New Zealand, um, the bureaucracy and parliamentarians better than the process of actually just jettisoning all those public health principles. Do people need to be punished? Silence. (laughs) I I just think, I don't think you'd want to call for heads to roll. I think what you want is an But what honest... if you've refused um, um, exemptions to people who have already had a bad reaction and have ended up either dead yeah. or completely... I mean, you, yeah. no and, one can and get have, away we, with we have that. You're not allowed to do for, that. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, equally you can run something over in your car or, or you know, burgle someone's house and hurt them there, And but we do have ACC for that. Yeah, but they knew. Is, you know, they, a, they knew. They knew. Yeah, I yeah. would like to say... Personally, I would like to see the discovery process. So I would like to see how the information went between, for example, the Ministry of Health, the Minister for COVID-19. I want to know what WhatsApp messaging happened. I want to understand how this information was 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 put through and we know that most of the mandates went through on secondary legislation so that was that only required three cabinet ministers um, to make a decision that that secondary legislation was fine and my work has has demonstrated that there was no evidence being looked at by Hipkins you know when all that secondary legislation those mandates were pouring through they were pouring through according to the deadlines not according to the risk profile so I actually want to say I want to say Parker, Hipkins, um, Bloomfield. I do. I want to see them in a court of law answering questions under oath. And that will inform the next move then, wouldn't it, what you you Yes. Yeah, because there's also the sort of statutory um, limitations of what the Director of General Health was able to do, and it became fairly clear after a while that that he wasn't even making those decisions. They were, uh, was it Dern and Hipkins, uh, um, which, you know, they were way way outside of their, their statutory power to be doing that. Yeah, well, young, young student activists from the Maoist tradition making people's medical decisions. <laughs> you know, and the the evidence when Parker put that pandemic law in place without any consultation, the evidence that what that this SARS-CoV-2 did not affect everyone equally and that most people were not at risk of hospitalisation and death was already there. So how informed was he? Who was informing him? He needs to be in a court of law too. And there's the myocarditis, pericarditis memo that went to Bloomfield. Um, Okay. Um, We've gone pretty well just over an hour. It's been really interesting. I mean, it's it's not easy to solve the world's problems, (laughs) let alone that, in that sort of time. But uh, any, I think we sort of got around the issues broadly. People can sort of like uh, visualize sort of the angles. Any last words from um, Grant, Linda, and Jody? Who wants to go first? Uh, my last words are, are, are short and sweet, and that is don't don't rely on the public health system or your doctor to uh, give you your health. Make your own decisions. Inform yourself. Get educated, and start small and build up. You know. M- transform your health in a way that you never have to be the person sitting in a waiting room at a public hospital with a chronic illness. And it is doable as, as Grant is finding out with his work with um, diabetes. Fear is a, is a rhetorical device to, to put, to get a result which is coercive, to convert, to coerce people into compliance. So people need to remember what happens when, when fear messaging is promoted. Good people don't push fear normally good people all right sorry grant go Uh, i I suppose my view on this whole thing is that you know doing more of the same thing that doesn't or hasn't worked is is never going to work and you know i know you you talk about that black hole um agree with that or not um asking people in the house system what's going to work they'll come up with more of the same of what we're doing so yeah you know, if we're considering doing this this is why the public's uh, voice is so so critical and impartial media is so critical because the only way forward in this is for that public discussion to happen 
So, Professor Grant Schofield, Jody Bunning, and Linda Wharton, thank you so much for coming on this morning, and I hope this is um, I hope this has helped in some way. Thank you, Paul. It's been it's Thanks, been Paul. great. Thank, thank you. you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.